It is the bottom of the ninth inning. I'd like to uh, thank our, our concessioners as they uh, have been handing out our popcorn and our sodas. Thank, can we thank our concessioners today? Great job, guys. Great job. <laughs> well, it is the last week of our series in Summer in the Miners as we've been going through the Minor Prophets. That's the common link here of why we have the baseball theme, why it's the last Sunday. You're going to see me preaching on AstroTurf at least for a couple weeks. I don't know. Maybe I'll preach on it more. But, uh, um, but uh, it, this has been, we've been going through the Old Testament Minor Prophets. Minor not meaning that they're less important than the other prophets, meaning that they're shorter books. And so we've walked through, uh, I, I think we're at about 10 minor prophets that we've gone through, 10 of the 12. Um, and so today, uh, we are in the last book, quite literally, of Malachi, or as I call it, Malachi, because I need to say things phonetically to know how to spell them. Um, I'm just a terrible speller. So we're in the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, not just in its sequence of like if you were to look in the table of contents, but literally chronologically, it is the last book in the Old Testament before we go through a period of several hundred years before Christ where there's just silence that uh, uh, we, that, there, in terms of the canon of our scripture, we don't have um, the word of God being spoken. It was really kind of a quiet dark time uh, for, for Israel as they waited for the Lord. Rome would come in and take over. But as we're in this last book, um, to give us a context of what's going on here, we look at the timeline. Remember that in 720 BC, Israel fell to Assyria. Assyria came in, um, as Hosanna talked about last week, Sennacherib took them off into captivity into Assyria. And then uh, just uh, about 130 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah would fall to Babylon. So you can see that around the year 585 BC, Jerusalem and the temple falls to Babylon. And uh, so near, during the next 70 years, as the southern kingdom of Judah is in captivity in Babylon, um, we see things happen that we, you'll read in the Old Testament stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That happens while they're in captivity in Babylon. The story of Daniel and the prophecies he receives and his time in the lion's den, that happens during, uh, during the time in Babylon. And so um, after those uh, 70 years, Babylon itself would fall. So there's Assyria, it falls to Babylon, and Babylon then falls to Persia. And so Persia comes and overthrows the Babylonian Empire, and there's a, a ruler named Cyrus the Great. Uh, I don't know if great was his last name. It just is, it happens to be that his middle name was The. Uh, but uh, he, uh, his name was Cyrus the Great. And, uh, and, and uh, true to God's word, he would bring his people out of exile during the rulership of Cyrus. When the Persians came in, Cyrus uh, had God move upon his heart. And he issued a decree that, dis- display- that all displaced peoples could return back to their homelands. Um, behind me, you'll see a picture here. This is, uh, while this looks like a delicious corn on the cob, it's not. It's, uh, this is actually an artifact that was discovered in 1879 uh, that's called the, the Cyrus Cylinder. And it dates to the 6th century. And in it, on it is written in cuneiform uh, all this writing. And it gives the, uh, first of all, it gives the genealogy of Cyrus. Uh, perhaps the whole family there. Great grandpa, great, and grandma great, and all the, all the great family. Um, but also, it gives details of how Cyrus issued a decree of the repatriation of dis- displaced peoples back to their homelands. 
So this actual piece of, of artifact, this, this item that was dug up through archaeology, confirms what, was got, what, what happened and what was told in Scripture. Um, uh, the, well, it doesn't directly include Jerusalem and the Jews on this particular artifact. For, for many uh, scholars, it's clear evidence that Cyrus had a policy of allowing the return of exiled people groups back to their homelands. And so it confirms the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah that, uh, that you read in the Bible. And so in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews return to the promised land. There's about four different groups that go over and return to the promised land. And through much difficulty, both internal strife... And external strife, they rebuild. They rebuild the walls and they rebuild the temple. And there's a lot of trouble that goes along with that. Several weeks ago, if you were here, Pastor Todd preached on Nehemiah and how they rebuilt and how they needed to keep on task with their building, right? Uh, they were getting distracted. They were getting putting paneling up in their own homes and instead of building the temple. And so there was this process that they go through, but they rebuild. And so now we are in the book of Malachi, and Malachi doesn't happen like three years after that. It happens a hundred years into the future. So Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah has happened. All these things have happened with this repatriation of the people. They've rebuilt the walls. They've rebuilt uh, the, the temple. And now a hundred years has passed. And things should be great, right? The people have returned just as God promised. This was the promise that they were given. The walls of the city are rebuilt. They've got security. The temple has been rebuilt. They have a place to worship. They should be thinking things are going great. But there's trouble. What's going on? Well, let's think about how long ago a hundred years was for us. That would put us about 1923. We would be right between the world wars. We'd still be a decade removed from, almost a decade removed from the Great Depression. You think about, that is a long time. A lot of history has passed in 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 100 years. And so, consider how much spiritual and moral and societal shifting has happened in the, the last 100 years for us. And then put that, superimpose that over Israel, how much had occurred. Um, you look at our world today, there's a Pew Research study that came out um, in 2017, and it said in the last 14 years, the number of Americans that identify themselves as Christians has fallen by 15% in just 14 years. It's, it's a massive shift. So the people of God had already forgotten in this 100 years all of the lessons and the reasons behind their captivity. The whole reason they went to, to Babylon, the 70 years they had to spend there, all that had happened had been forgotten. And they had become spiritually apathetic and complacent. Exile hadn't changed anything. And you imagine how frustrated God had to feel and his prophets had to feel that they're right back to where they started. All of what we've studied this last summer and they're like, we're back to square one. But if there's one constant that we can see in the prophets that we've studied, Jonah going to Nineveh, uh, we talked about Amos who went to Israel, we talked about Nahum who went to Judah, and they preached to these people groups, there's always a call to repentance, a call back, God is patient, he's not willing that any should perish, they bring this word, and sometimes there's a response to it, and, and other times it's ignored, right? But no matter what, even if there's a response, there's always a relapse. It's, it's never been like, wow, I said it, and everybody just kind of pulled it together and we're good from now on. There seems to always be a relapse, and, and often it happens within just a generation. It, within a generation, people become spiritually apathetic and complacent, and this is what has happened when Malachi is writing this. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 1 and 2 to start. Malachi 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. I have always loved you, says the Lord. 
But you retort, really? How have you loved us? We'll pause there. So God declares his love for Israel and they go, really? How? It's like, it's like when you tell your spouse, I love you. Really? How? Why? Tell me why. Why do you love me? Um, and, 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 and the people are go, really God, you loved us? How? And he, he responds with, are you serious? Are you serious? Uh, hello, you're back from captivity. I did that twice. Um, I've, I brought you back. I brought you back home. Um, I protected you during the time that you rebuilt Jerusalem. You were without protection. You were without walls. That's what he really talks about here. His answer in Malachi chapter, chapter one is he gives a response of like, who protected you from the outside people's groups while you were rebuilding and reestablishing yourself? How have I shown you my, my love over and over again? And so he replies to him, all this time I've shown you my love. And so then we move down to verse 6 and it says this, The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, A son honors his father and a servant respects his master. So if I'm your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name, but you ask, How have we ever shown contempt for your name? They're very sassy people. And so, and so God, once again, says, I, I, I am asking, I'm telling you, I deserve your respect. I am your God. I am your king. I am your Lord. If a son honors his father, if a servant respects his master, I am those things. Where are the things that I deserve? Uh, let me tell you, no one likes to think that they're a bad person. If I were to say in this room, who, who considers yourself a pretty bad person in here? Most of us wouldn't want to raise our hands. Maybe some of us have an opinion of ourselves that way, but most of us don't like to think of ourselves like that, that we would do something that upsets God or that angers God. We're kind of like the disciples. Surely not I, Lord, right? (laughs) You say, God may have beef with other people, but he and I have an understanding. We've got an understanding of of things. Um, And here's where God says, oh, you want to know why you're... you're," They they say, surely, God, how have we shown contempt for your name? He goes, you want to know? I'll tell you. Read with me in verse uh, verse 8. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You say it's too hard to serve the Lord. And you turn up your noses at my commands, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these, asks the Lord. So the people are presenting animals to God that are sick, that are crippled, that are diseased, even stolen animals. Grand theft donkey. And they... they what? <laughs> They are stealing people's animals and using those as sacrifices. How offensive is that? You go mug someone in the parking lot so you can tithe it. <laughs> and they're, they're sacrificing animals that would have cost them nothing. They were unusable. As beasts of burden, they were crippled. You couldn't use them. If they're diseased, you wouldn't want to breed them or eat them. So these are, these are sacrifices that they're giving God that cost them nothing. They're, they're empty. And they, they go, oh, what am, what am I going to do? Well, you know what? We'll just give it to God. We owe him one anyway. And so, so this goes directly, though, against God's command. In Leviticus 22, he gives explanation for what kind of sacrifices are to be brought, right? They're to be the first of the harvest. They're to be without defect, without blemish, because they represent who Christ is going to be one day as the sacrifice for our sins. God get, lays out what a sacrifice is supposed to look like, and they're bringing these sheep. They're like, meh, meh, you know, <laughs> running into walls because they're blind. 
And they, they are sacrificing things that cost them nothing. And as people, I don't care how much money you have or how many resources you have or how little you have, we can be really tight-fisted. We can be really tight-fisted. There was a, a billionaire in the mid-century, mid-20th century, by the name of uh, J. Paul Getty from the Getty family, which had a lot of money. Now, um, in many respects, <clears throat> he is still known as not just one of the wealthiest people that ever lived, but the wealthiest person that ever lived in all of history, barring maybe Solomon, I don't know. He was worth billions in the mid-1900s, and uh, in 1973, his grandson got kidnapped. And, uh, and the kidnappers were in Italy, and they sent a demand for $17 million in ransom. And he said, no. And do you know what they did? They sent back a part of his grandson. Part of it, they took off his ear. As well as a lock of his hair. And when he got that, he finally capitulated. He said, all right, I'll pay you $3 million. And they, they came to an agreement. Okay, we'll take $3 million. And instead, he only paid $2.2 million. Because that was the maximum amount that was tax deductible at the time. And then he gave the rest, the other $800,000, in a loan to his son to pay off the, the kidnappers, uh, in a loan to his son at 4% interest. Can you believe that? I, it's, it's just, it boggles the mind. We're horrified at the callous Scrooge heart of this guy, this Getty guy, who's like worth billions of dollars. His own grandson is getting his ear cut off, and he's like, mm, what's tax deductible here? But at the same way... We're horrified at that, but how do we negotiate with God? We give Him the leftovers of our week often. Sometimes we don't view Sunday as the start of our week. We view it as the end of our week and what we've got left at the end of the week. If I am able to get some time to really recover after a long work week and things like that, we'll see how church works out. Or, or, or we give Him the remainder of the paycheck, if there is any. Because that's got to go a long ways. Or the last minutes of our day, before our heads hit the pillow, we go, okay, Lord, before I drift off to sleep, I just need to real... And he's getting our leftovers. And he's getting, us what con- getting from us what costs us nothing. You see, when we contempt, we contempt God when we sacrifice that which costs us nothing. So how do we not give God our leftovers and ensure that he does get our best? Well, let's... Let's start with how we start. Let's start with how we start our day. Are we beginning our days with God at the forefront of our day? You know, we can take, have our devotions and personal prayer time at any time of the day. Let me tell you, I encourage you, if you have a time that's right, but if it's really, if you look at it in all honesty and you're going, he's getting the leftovers, start your day with the Lord. Wake up with the Lord. Psalm 59, 16 says, But as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. David says, I'm going to start the morning with you, God. I'm going to start the morning remembering what you've done, your unfailing love, how you've been my refuge. And, and, and so it starts with God at the forefront. And it sets a tone for the rest of the day, let me tell you. When it sets the tone for the rest of our day, how we walk through it, it changes things. How many times have you ever had your, your time with the Lord, your quiet time with the Lord at the end of the day, and you go, oh man, there's so many things I really blew. I wish that I had really had that at the forefront of my mind. And then we're going through and rehashing all those things. Let me encourage you to start the day with God at the forefront. Secondly, it's demonstrated through how we actually live. Let me tell you, actions speak louder than words do. Talk is cheap. 
Talk is cheap. Um, I, I always crack up at the big trash talkers you see on, on Sports Center, and then they get beat for a, you know, a deep pass or you know, dunked on or something like that. Talk is cheap. Let's see it actually played out. James chapter 1 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. Yeah. Dallas Willard said this, We don't believe something by merely saying we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it was true. I can pull a chair or a stool up over here and say, I believe that stool is going to hold me and talk all I want about the quality of the craftsmanship and the build and how that was put together. But until I actually put my weight down on it, I haven't trusted that stool. And so there's action that needs to be put behind it. We can profess all day long, God, you're my priority. And we can sing these songs. These songs were powerful. And you're kind of just moved, compelled to just want to sing it. It's, it's almost just like, just comes out of you. But let me tell you, um, we can profess it all and sing all the songs. But until we become doers, it's lip service. And God's not looking for lip service. So here's my question for you. This is a tough one. And this is how I would say if we were to have connection card response time, This is how we do it. If you have anything to write down for yourself, maybe on your cell phone, in your notes app, or on a piece of paper, here's my question for you. What is the greatest treasure that you possess? What is the greatest treasure that you possess? It could be literal treasure for some in this room. It could be a person. It could be a skill. It could be a job. It could be a car. What's the greatest treasure you possess? And then the second part is this. Is it available to God? Is it available to him? So, with that light thought, then what is God's response when we bring in what's rightfully his? Malachi gives the answer in chapter 3. Here's what he says. It starts off kind of, kind of heavy. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, listen to this. I will open up the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Try it. Would you believe me if I told you that God was just waiting for the opportunity to bless you? In in all... 31,102 verses that are in the Bible, uh, you will find only one where God says, hey, I want you to test me on something. One. And that's right here. One test that God says. He says, look what happens when you trust me with your best. From You go from curse. He opens this by saying, you are a cursed people. He says, trust me, test me in this, and I will open the gates of heaven. I will open the windows of heaven, and you will be so blessed, you don't even know where to put it. And so this is the one time God says, I want to bless you with abundance, so test me in it. Put me to the test. Malachi goes on in chapter 2. He says this. You cry out, well, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I tell, you this, I tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained faith, your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife in body and spirit? You are His. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the life of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. So, Malachi opens with a vertical aspect to God's contempt. Right? 
with how we bring our sacrifices, how we bring something that's costly, something that's not cheap, something that's not stolen. This is our relationship to God. But then he goes to a horizontal correlation to how we relate with one another. And in this regard, to our closest relationship we have on this earth with our spouse. And this is in response to something that was going on and becoming a common practice among the people. You see, they were living among all these other people groups around them that were idol worshippers and things like that. And the men were frivolously divorcing their wives so that they could go and have affairs with these women who were idolaters around them. And they were, they were messing around outside their marriages. And they were treating their wives treacherously. And, and in the ESV, that verse we just read, it actually puts it as, The one who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence covers his garment with violence what what that means is in the day weddings would include a husband wrapping his cloak around his bride and uh, we did something similar to to this in our in our wedding this there's a filipino tradition where a shawl is placed um, on my shoulders and it went over hosanna's head and then a cord was wrapped around us and it represented my uh, covering over her as well as our our bonding together being united and in the same way these these uh, jewish weddings the husband would take his cloak and wrap it around his wife to show his protection and his covering and and so what is being said here he's saying you are doing violence to her you are ripping that garment that thing that's supposed to bond you your protection your covering is being torn away and you are doing damage to her and so when a divorce outside of biblical grounds happens we're doing violence to that person now i i i want to speak with gentleness about divorce because i think most all of us have been affected by it in some way or another either directly or indirectly um divorce is like death it can end very acrimoniously and, and people never want to see each other again. But let me tell you, there is brokenness and it's like death. Um, the Bible does give a, a very short, narrow list of circumstances at which divorce is permissible. Um, but he never commands, commands it. Um, so while there are situations in which Scripture does give biblical allowance... Um, The Bible is very clear. It's important to point out that this is one issue about which God says he hates. He hates divorce. Divorce is is not an unpardonable sin. I think sometimes it's categorized as that, as, oh, that that disqualifies you from life. That's really, you've just, let me tell you, that is not an unpardonable sin, but it does grieve God. Um, because, and here's where I'm going to tie this together with what we just started this message with, to, to what we're talking about now. The bond of marriage in Scripture is an illustration of God's covenant with His people. And so ultimately, it's a, an illustration of Jesus' bond to the church. As we live out marriage, we are actually allegorizing, we are living letters of God's commitment to His people. A sacred covenant. So even though uh, we go through differences and hurts and, and laughter and sorrow, marriage is an amazing story of how we learn to bear with one another. Despite differences, let me tell you, I didn't know everything about Hosanna when we got married. And I didn't tell her I was going to share this today, and I hope she's getting really uncomfortable. But, uh, you okay? You okay? I discovered that she only uses 99% of the toothpaste tube and then throws it away. That is a waste of money. You've got to roll it so tight that your fingers are aching as you roll it up and you take the, the, your toothbrush and actually use it as a scraper on that. That's how you use toothpaste appropriately. But we have worked through it as a couple. 
<laughs> she doesn't know what I'm going to share next sermon. The next service, that's going to be great. But let me tell you, covenant goes beyond just emotion or agreement on every issue. Covenant goes deep. God calls us to return to the commitment of covenant. The commitment of covenant. Marital language is used throughout the Bible expressing the, the depth of what this means. In Isaiah 54, 5, uh, he says, For your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. Isaiah 62, 5, Your children will, will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. New Testament as well. Jesus says, as the, the bridegroom to the church, as scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined with his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. And so Malachi, first of all, he's calling out a very real event that's happening on. You are doing violence to your 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 wives and your relationships by going and, and messing around, by doing these things. Knock it off. Pull it together. But it's also an illusion, a, a painting of the picture of what all of Malachi is about. It's about the covenant of commitment. The covenant of I am committed to you, God says, as my people. I am covering you. I am protecting you. There is nothing that will draw me away. God is faithful. Even though we have our own failings, he never does. And covenant is a steadfast commitment that says, I will not fold up the tent when difficulty comes. It bears all. It endures. And, and God does not give up on Israel at this time. And he doesn't give up on us. Malachi three seventeen through 18. This is how he closes out the book. It starts so heavy. I mean, you want to read some crazy stuff. Chapter 2, I believe he's talking about how he wants to throw manure on their faces and things like that. It's wild. He's really mad at Israel. But this is how he closes out the book. He says this in chapter 3. They will be my people, says the Lord of heaven's armies. On the day when I act in judgment, they will be my own special treasure. I will spare them as a father spares an obedient child. Then you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And then in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves out, let out into the pasture. He says there's going to be healing in his wings and you will go free. So this morning, do you need healing? Do you need freedom? Because today he offers it. It's found in relationship with the one who created you. He created you for purpose and on purpose. You may have been told you're a mistake. You may have been told that, that you shouldn't be here. Let me tell you, you have been created for purpose and on purpose. And when we serve our God with wholeness and with every portion of our being, it captivates us with purpose. Not just obligation, but then the purpose comes into it. When we serve him with, out of the fullness of who we are. But it requires that we choose him over everything else. This is what that bond of covenant means. It means we're not sharing God with something else. When I decided to marry Hosanna, I said, I am choosing you and no other. There is no other. It is you. Decide, um, if you take that, uh, that suffix, C-I-D-E, side, the, the uh, etymology of that is the same as homicide and pesticide. Its root, mean, its root means to determine by killing off all the other choices. So when we decide, we say, I'm putting death to all the other choices and only going for this one.
And so it's saying, I'm not going back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, as the hymn says. No turning back. I am going all in for Jesus. I, I am not giving any opportunity to return to those things. I am in covenant with Him. And so we have, through Jesus, hope to have that whole life to say, when I decide you, Jesus, life is given to us. Jesus offers us the free gift of purpose and fulfillment in life, and it's only found through Him. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. When we had our vendors come through giving out stuff, at first, some people may not have raised their hand. Maybe you didn't at all because you thought, well, what if they're selling stuff? I know they rip you off in these situations. These guys, they're going to, it's a $10 popcorn. Maybe you thought, could there be a price? Could there be something that comes with this? Is there a hook or whatever it might be? Let me tell you, the gift of God is a free gift. All you have to do is reach out and receive it. Say, Jesus, I received that free gift that you offered. The gift of God is eternal life. It's something you can't buy. It's something you can't give enough in the offering plate when it comes by. It's something that you can't be a good enough person. You can't feed enough orphans. You can't help enough people cross the street. You can't do all these things to earn salvation. The Bible is very clear that all of us have sinned and sin separates us from God. God was uh, good enough in his sovereignty to give us the opportunity to choose for ourselves whether whether or not we live for him. We get to choose the direction we go, the choices we make. We have free will. We are sentient beings that have the ability to choose. And he gave us that opportunity. And scripture is very clear that every one of us have chosen our own way. I have sinned badly, deeply. You have sinned. Not one of us in this room have lived a perfect life. And so if we have a God who is perfection and can have nothing to do with anything that's not perfection, how do we have relationship with Him? We can't. We've been separated in those decisions we've made. But God, in His mercy, sent Jesus. Jesus took on the fullness of humanity. Our own troubles, our sorrows, our pains, our weaknesses, yet he never sinned. He fully was God. He never sinned. He took our sin willingly upon himself to the cross, though. He died and took death in our place so that we could have life. And he died and was put in the grave. But the Bible says that on the third day, he was raised. We have a risen king. Otherwise, he would have just been another martyr. But he was raised and we have a living God. So that's why in the second service, when when we have our baptism time and we celebrate those that are being baptized, it represents us dying to our old self, that we could never resurrect ourselves, but being raised up in Christ. New creations under the new covenant. And so this morning, as we close, I want to give you this opportunity. Could we bow our heads and close our eyes, church? Jesus is love personified. God's love extended to us. And maybe you've been trying to just go through the motions. Maybe you've been trying to do enough. But really, maybe you've been giving God leftovers. And and you're like, I just hope it's enough. But right now you say, I need to be fully committed to Him. I need to decide that I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus. Make Him my Lord and Savior. Take His righteousness upon myself where I couldn't turn it and say, Jesus, I want you to forgive me of my sin, of my rebellion. Come into my life. Give me hope. Give me purpose. So right now in this room, if you're in this room and you have never given your heart to Jesus, maybe you have never made that decision you've never raised your hand you've never said that prayer maybe you have before but you go this is a time where i need to reevaluate and say this is a moment of decision this is a moment where there is no turning back i'm going to follow jesus 
And so if that's you in this room, you say, I want to give my life to Christ. I want his life. Will you raise your hand and raise it high? I want to pray with you. Raise it up. Raise it up. Thank you. I see that hand and that hand. Yes, thank you. Any others? Thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Right now, church, we're going to pray together. And this prayer, it's not in the words we say, but it's in the position and the stance of our heart where we say, Jesus, I believe who you say you are. And that I need you to forgive me of the sin and the separation that I have created between me and God. I need you to be the intermediary, the one who is, uh, the, the one who washes my sin away and gives me relationship with God. And so right now we're going to pray this prayer. It's a prayer of faith, a prayer of the position of our hearts. So repeat this after me. Say, dear Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I affirm you are the son of God. You came and died for me. You gave your life for me. You took my sin, so I give you my heart. Today I decide, you are my king, and you are my Lord. I believe that you reign and are alive today, and I make you my savior. From this day forward, wash away my sin, in your name, amen, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Lastly, before we close, and we're going to get to watch the baptism video, we'll get you out of here right on time. But I want to give you the opportunity to respond to the Lord if maybe you have been giving God what's not quite best. You've been giving Him the leftovers. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but this is a time between you and God. Maybe you've been giving Him the remainder of your week, the remainder of your paycheck, the remainder of your time, the remainder of your heart. Let me tell you, as much as we love our families, does he still come first? See, the love for our families flows out of our love for God. That's the good news. But sometimes we put our family on such a pedestal that God gets forgotten. So our love needs to flow through the relationship that we have with our God. So right now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, I pray for this church. As we take a hard look in the mirror, this is a challenging thing. Have we been bringing what is lame and crippled and, and, and costs nothing to us? Or it, it, feels, it feels like it, 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 it's easy to give because it's available. But Lord, you call us to give what's our best because you deserve the best. You should have the first, foremost, highest priority in our life. And Lord, give us the courage to evaluate those things. Where have I been making shortcuts in my relationship with you? Where have I been cutting you off? Where have I been just giving you the, the, the cuttings from the cutting room floor? Lord, I pray right now that we would establish you as the king of every area of our life. And as we do, the curse would be lifted in some lives where maybe we've been holding things back. Lord, I pray that there would be blessings that were unexpected. Lord, blessings that would be poured out from heaven on us, on, on, on this church when they step out and say, God, I'm going to give you what is absolutely deserved by you. You're the very best for my king, my utmost for his highest. And we thank you for it, Jesus, that you do deserve all the glory and honor and praise. When we get to live for something beyond ourselves, a purpose beyond our own purpose, Lord, I pray that that kingdom would continue to grow within our hearts, that we would live for the greater, greater kingdom that is yet to come, that is here now, here on this earth, Lord, but also yet to come. And we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.
Amen. 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 Praise God. Well, in, like I said in second service, we are going to be celebrating some baptisms. Are you ready to watch their videos? And then we will dismiss you, church. All right, take a look at this. My name is Brandon. Uh, I came to Jesus through help. My family wasn't really religious. You know, I didn't go to church growing up, and I'd been in church. I felt presence in church, you know, and uh, honestly, it just, I needed it, you know. I really started coming full-time about four years ago, you know, and uh, there's so many different things that pushed me in this direction, you know, I wasn't in a good place in life, and honestly, like, to have something to fall back on and draw strength from was huge for me, so, I mean, if it wasn't for Jesus, I don't know where I'd be right now. Jesus is, he's my friend, man, like, he, anytime I'm stressed or feeling emotional or needing someone to talk to, I can just talk, you know, just saying it out loud is enough for me to realize, like, someone hears me. Anytime I need strength, I just, I ask for it, you know, uh, I've had such good things come my way since turning to Jesus, and uh, I just really draw strength from it, honestly, you know, it gives me something to hope in, so yeah. My name is Shelly, and I came to know Jesus from birth. I grew up in a faith-driven home, and our home had Jesus in it, and I never questioned that there was a Jesus because he was in our life every day for as long as I can remember. He was forever faithful. For 25 years, I walked away from him, and he never stopped waiting for me, and... I thought I had a personal relationship with him in the, in the past, and what I realized in the last year and a half of putting myself back into church was that the relationship that I have with him is so much different than I expected. I have a, a my days I want to talk to him at all times. He's my best friend, and I just feel like I swell up with so much knowing how much he loves me and how he never left me but he waited for me and when I was ready to go to him he left the 99 and came and reached his hand out to me and my relationship with him since then has been something that is indescribable. it's a new I don't want to say a new start I mean I've been baptized before but this one holds significant meaning for me you know um, two and a half years ago this wasn't me you know I've spent a lot of time changing a lot of time 
reflecting on myself and bettering myself, you know, and I finally feel like I'm in a place that is worthy of people's love, you know. Not saying that I wasn't before, but at the same time, like, my actions didn't reciprocate the fact that they did love me, you know. My actions today show that I care about them, and I really want them to know that. God's put me through trials that I've really struggled to get through, and I honestly feel like they all led me to this. A new relationship with God, a deeper relationship that we have been building together for the last year and a half. He has stood by my side. He has walked me through valleys. He has never failed me. And for me to be baptized shows him that I just want to walk this relationship for the rest of my life with him. That he is my provider and that this being baptized is giving him that honor of, of the fact that he never once left me and he has blessed me incredibly in the last year and a half and I want to show him by being baptized that I commit to him fully Come on, let's sing this out together. 